this series presents information based in part on theory and conjecture. The facts that will be presented are true. Scientists representing the world's foremost research centers took part in the examination of the evidence. everybody i'm chris and i'm chad and together we're a paranormal guys as close as we can be except on tuesdays well yeah spaghetti day <laughs> is it uh-huh is that spaghetti day in the it's old chad spaghetti house day. Oh, i don't know just made that up why not taco night from now on it will be it'll be tuesday spaghetti night tuesday spaghetti night mm-hmm. you are gonna opt in for meatless monday no. i heard one of the local high schools or school systems is trying to adopt that Meatless, meatless Monday. Mondays. Huh. So people can't get together on Monday? No. No oh. meats. Everybody eats alone. Oh. I mean, that's the way I interpreted it. <laughs> hey, you know, your interpretations may vary. That's true. So anything new going on with you, uh, Chadwick? Uh, no, sir. Nothing. Excellent. Yes. How about yourself? No, not really. No. Just <laughs> biding your time. Biding my time. Nice. But now there is some uh, new exciting news for the show that we are going to try to put in the works. This is true. We're going to try to start doing some more interviews. The more interviews are good. Getting those kind of to come in, whether it's a, hey, you wrote a new book, you have anything to do with paranormal at all. Uh-huh. I saw a ghost. Hey, we'll interview you. That's right. Paranormal pants. He had a paranormal pants. And he wanted to talk about it. Haunted pants, huh? Haunted pants, sir. Let me take back that, hey, we'll interview you (laughs) statement there. Okay. Uh, And one other thing we're going to do is we're going to try to get our YouTube channel caught up and keep that current. Thank God. I know. That bugs you, doesn't it? Uh Uh-huh. A lot of people like to listen to their podcasts on YouTube. You can't watch that video of the static screen of our logo. That's true. But yeah, we're going to try to get that going and keep that current. Yes. And uh, we'll be working on the more permanent Studio 2 here in the next few weeks to try to get that going to where we have a permanent setup to where we don't have to move things around and everything like that. And in the process of doing that, Chad has also expressed the uh, interest in doing a little bit of video of the shows. Possibly get some video going pretty soon. I mean... I don't know if anybody's going to want to watch us, Chad, but... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
but I mean, hey, pe- people watch all kinds of vi- those videos on, you know, what, Discovery and Animal Planet and stuff, so they may want to tune in and watch us. Yeah, another killer whale show. <laughs> anyway, I uh, think people would be interested in the intricate inner workings of this finely tuned machine. <laughs> they have no breeding program. That's right. <laughs> this is true. One day they will release Chad to the wild. We can see the sucker marks on him, where obviously he was attacked by a giant squid. <laughs> wow. Uh, I hope we don't have giant squid down here. Oh, they're all over the place. Chupacabra. They crawl through the toilet. <laughs> really? Uh-huh. Giant squid crawl through the toilet? Yeah, anything's possible. We're close to the river. Come in on the river, find a pipe. Next thing you know, they're in somebody's Sh- toilet. Sure. Uh huh. Okay, I the we, size of a dinner plate. We can go with that. <laughs> sure. Cracking. <laughs> Damn near killed him. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Oh, so anyway, yeah, we'll uh, keep everybody up to speed on all that. When anytime we're gonna do some kind of quirky little change with the show, and who knows, one of these days we may try to up the ante and go once a week. Uh oh. Double your pleasure. And <laughs> double your fun. <laughs> Oh, but until then, we'll carry on like normal, and part of that will be Chad scurrying over to the Pear-O News Desk. We moved it closer so I wouldn't have to breathe so hard. So what do you have up for us tonight, Chad? Well, I've got a little something here from Mysterious Universe. Mysterious. It's mysterious. There's seven miles of massive footprints found in North Dakota. Wow. Seven miles. Who measured that? Some guy that walked almost seven miles. <laughs> we had a good pedometer. Mm-hmm. A small community in rural North Dakota experienced a very odd visitor this past Christmas. Apparently, the holiday cheer in Dickey County attracted a fabled being in the same tier as Santa Claus, Bigfoot. The only difference, <laughs> Bigfoot may actually be real. Wait, what? Yeah, well, we, what all, you, know, we all know Santa's I don't, real. I don't like what you're insinuating there. I'm just reading it. Oh, okay. I didn't insinuate anything. (laughs) And one man has a compelling story to support it. On the evening of December 25th, 2016, in a small manger, no, wait a minute, an (laughs) Ellendale, North Dakota woman witnessed a huge, hairy, ugly monster. She thought, man, I'll shave that. And then she looked through the kitchen window. Startled, she called her family friend, Christopher Bauer, an experienced woodsman, to investigate. Bauer arrived on the scene and discovered 18-inch long, 8-inch wide footprints that left deep impressions. Jack Bauer. They were deep impressions, he thought. Hmm. Why are we here? In the snowy ground, <laughs> the separation of the prints indicated an amazing four-inch, four-inch, no, four-foot. I'm sorry. Four-inch prints? Holy crap, it's mini Bigfoot. A four-foot long, four long stride. Even more amazing, <laughs> the trackway spanned an incredible seven miles through the rural farmland. Bauer followed hundreds of prints leading across a distant, distant highway until they eventually faded up into nearby hills. The season tracker was, of course, exhilarated by the discovery. How hard is it to track a season? Mm. I mean, they usually fall in order. It's true. It's a Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Gigantopithecus, whatever you want to call him. He's a real animal. He's here, and I want people to know. This was a quote. Okay. That gentleman. Is North Dakota actually a Bigfoot hotspot? W-D-A-Y, Waday, the news station responsible for the original broadcast, news article and field interview with Bauer conveyed a skeptical tone throughout their coverage. The station seemed skeptical not exactly by the idea of a Sasquatch, but that one of them was actually seen in North Dakota. 
Is that an is that assumption valid? Is North Dakota not a true Bigfoot hotspot like Washington or California? Mm-hmm. The answer simply is no, not at all. The Bigfoot Field Research Organization, BFRO, 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 BFRO. We know BFRO reports a mere six encounters total. Comparatively, the state of Washington charged 623 encounters, the most of any state. Even Connecticut, the smallest state besides Hawaii, received 12 encounter reports over the years. So what's the deal with North Dakota? I thought Rhode Island was the smallest state. According to what they're thinking. Hmm. What is the deal with North Dakota? What is it, Chris? Do you know? Uh, I mean, it's North well, North Dakota is the fourth least, Fargo. <laughs> it's the least densely populated state in the entire country. Additionally, Dickey County lays on the border of South Dakota, the fifth least densely populated state. Dickey County itself only has 4.7 people per square mile. Translation, even though the large landmass, access to water, available shelter, and abundant food supply provide the perfect environment for a creature the size of Sasquatch, there's just no one there to see him. So it's the old tree falling in the woods thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even more granular, if you consider the idea that the North American Sasquatch population size is somewhere between 842 and 11,919, the range of minimum viable species, then we truly have a needle in a haystack in the size of North Dakota. It is actually amazing that not only did this man track seven miles worth of massive footprints, but his neighbor saw the creature's face in her window as well. That is, if the sighting was genuine. Despite the fantastic detail of the story, certain questions must be asked. What specifically did that creature in the window look like? Was the trackway fluid and unbroken throughout? How did he determine the creature reached down to pick up a mouse or vole or something like that? <laughs> and perhaps most importantly, did the tracks really just fade into the hills or did they end on the highway? Unfortunately, until physical evidence surfaces, we must assume the Bigfoot in question walked seven miles across snowy farmland to the highway, got into his car, and drove away. Uh, he walked. I bet he got into a car. He run to the hills. Yeah, that's what he did. Run for your life. I think he ran off, or I think he got in the car and drove off listening to Tom Petty. But if you ask Bauer, <laughs> Sasquatch is alive and well in North Dakota. The truth is out there. It's there. I know he is. I tracked him. Yeah, well, mm-hmm. then there proves it. Yeah. He tracked him. So there you go. He took a picture. There's his footprint inside of a footprint. If you'd like to check out that story. Pshaw. So Bigfoot is scoping out people through their kitchen windows, chewing on mice, bopping them in the head, bunny foo-fooing down seven miles. Big old hairy Bigfoot. Walking through the forest, picking up mice and voles, bopping them on the head. You got it. So, Chris. Hey, Mr. Bigfoot. Why are you picking up Mr. Bigfoot. Yes, Chad. <laughs> so, what do you got, sir? Oh, Chad. Mm-hmm. In yeah. times. Oh, no. Once again, we go to Mysterious Universe. Mysterious and we travel to Houston. Houston, Texas. A mysterious bird apocalypse on the Houston highway. Uh-oh. That's right. He's the most powerful mutant. <laughs> bird apocalypse? Bird apocalypse. Right next to He's bird got flu. wings. <laughs> mm. 
A huge flock of blackbirds mysteriously descended on a Houston highway on January 19th, seemingly oblivious to the speeding cars as a video of the scene showed them hitting the windshield. Mm. This has occurred before in Houston, but now it appears to be happening more frequently. Is this a warning to Houston? To Texas? To cars? Rick Ocasek wants to know. They all use Windex. This latest real recreation of a scene from Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds was recorded by Jessica Rios on an unidentified Houston freeway, since Houston is covered with freeways. It could be anywhere. Traffic is backed up on the other side of the freeway, a common occurrence in Houston that could be related to the birds, rush hour, or the weather, since the sky appears to be darkened with storm clouds. The birds appear to be black, which means they could be blackbirds. <laughs> what? Uh-huh. Crows, common grackles, which are very common in Houston, or some other bird made unidentifiable by the lighting. Hmm. Huge flocks of birds have been showing up regularly around Houston, with similar events reported in 2016 and 2015. Hannah Bailey, a bird expert at the Houston Zoo, explained after an incident in October 2016 that blackbirds gather in large groups to find food and keep warm, and they are, and are key to keeping the Houston mosquito population down. However, that doesn't explain why they were attacking cars. I think they've. I think they've just finally gotten fed up with global warming, and they see cars as the main culprit. They've had enough. Eco blackbirds. Eco-terrorist blackbirds. The vein of Captain Planet. You're a tree. (laughs) Since stories of bird attacks inevitably reference the birds, is there a connection here? The movie, which never explains the attacks, was said to be based on a short story of the same name, attacks unexplained in it as well, in an incident in 1961 in Monterey, California. Huge flocks of seabirds rammed into houses. Autopsies of the birds revealed poison from toxic algae, which causes amnesia, disorientation, and seizures. The hell you say? A housing boom and rains carried toxic runoff to the ocean where it poisoned the plankton eaten by the birds. Sounds like Houston with its housing boom and recent heavy, and some would say apocalyptic rains. Were these blackbirds sending an environmental warning to Houston? Biblical? They're not birds of prey unless you're a mosquito. As of now, this mystery of the birds attacking Houston cars is unsolved, with only the people happy about it being car wash owners. Hmm. And there you have it. (laughs) Well, it looks like if nobody wants a bird to crash into their car anymore, they're going to have to start driving Dodges. Zing. (laughs) Well, strange indeed, sir. Zippity doodah zinger ring. Did any of those cars get hit by a killer squid? It doesn't say. No killer squid hit the car. It could have been. I think there was a shark, though. Yeah. Land shark. Sharknado. Can cram. And that is your Pero News Stories. (laughs) (laughs) But, coming up after the break, Chad, Mm -hmm. I believe we have a kind of very interesting show tonight. We do, we do. We are returning to the beast of the land between the lakes. Very scary. It is.
Hi, everybody, and welcome back. Hello, hello. Pause. <laughs> so, as Chad said before, tonight uh, we are going to talk about the Beast of Land Between the Lakes, and I think specifically, probably the most famous, if not most horrifying, <laughs> encounter with the Beast of Land Between the Lakes. Make you not want to go camping. And now, the uh, the story we're going to tell, it's actually from Phantoms and Monsters uh, on the internet, but... It's a story that was originally told by Jan Thompson, and it can be found, basically you go on Google and type in Beast of Land Between the Lakes, and 90% of what comes up is going to be something to do with this story that she originally told. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's basically all over the interwebs. It is. Yeah. It's a horrifying tale. Horrifying. It is quite scary. Yes. So, Chad, mm-hmm. take her away. This is the story of the beast of the land between the lakes. There's a national recreation area in western Kentucky that also runs down to Tennessee called Land Between the Lakes, or LBL for short. It is situated between the Kentucky and Barkley Lakes, consisting of more than 300 miles of shoreline, 170,000 acres of forest, and over 200 miles of walking trails. It is currently a focal point of over $600 million in the tourism industry. Prior to 1959, before the Kentucky and Lake Barkley dams were constructed and before it was officially called LBL, in 1963 by President John F. Kennedy and before TVA, the Tennessee Valley Authority, the federal government used its powers of eminent domain to buy and tear down all the houses, businesses, and community buildings throughout the entire area, forcing over 700 families to give up their homes. They took over the land. The area was called Between the Rivers. There are over 228 small family cemeteries, many forgotten about and lost, dotted throughout the acres of forest as it was once used as homes to early Kentucky settlers. Some of the earliest graves date back to the early 1700s, which include graves of white settlers, veterans from nearly every war, including the Revolutionary War, and also those of black slaves and Chinese immigrants who worked in the iron furnaces that were in the area. There was also a very high infant mortality rate, and many of these children were buried right outside the cabins from where they were born so that their mother could peer out the window and see the grave. There were also numerous Native American graves scattered throughout the acres, much older than even the earliest of settler graves. Some discovered, others lay in secret beneath the layers of leaves and forest ferns. And back before the 1950s, it always had been a very rural area to live in. Farmsteads far and few between, and no real town to speak of except in the north end in Grand Rivers. It was in this town, back in the mid-70s, that I first heard of the Beast Between the Rivers, or known now as the Beast of Land Between the Lakes. Some old-timers would sit on this long wooden bench outside of the old IGA store that used to be the old country store for decades before the grocery conglomerate came to town. I used to hang around there on the weekends during the day and listen to the stories they would eat, they each would tell. These old men, most of whom used to live in land between the lakes before they were forced to move, had some very interesting stories to tell about that part of the, count, the country. There was talk of hauntings, Indian curses, mysterious lights over gravestones at night, old hag witches that lived deep in the woods, and more importantly, several tales of a wolf-like creature that stood on two legs that would come out of the thickets and attack their cattle and livestock, day or night. A creature that was taller than an average man by well over a foot, nearly seven feet tall, with thick long hair covering its body and a stench that matched that of some of the freshly opened graves that were discovered now and then. 
this wolf man left tracks like a barefoot man, but when where the toes should have been, instead, were paw prints. The head was huge and wolf-like in appearance, with an extra long snout, and uncanny long sharp incisors that glistened from the moonlight with saliva, along with eyes that radiated red like one of the hottest fires in hell, they'd say. It had long arms that ended with huge hands and long spindly fingers with long pointed dirt-caked claws. At night, they would hear it howl, unnatural guttural sounds of painful, hungry agony, and at that warning, all would go out and tie up their livestock and even bring their most prized selections inside their homes with them. The legend of the beast went back at least a hundred years and was passed along through time from family to family and updated as new sightings occurred. One old man said that his great-great-grandpappy told him that the creature used to be a man, a Native American that had the ability to shapeshift, a powerful shaman that had been outcast from his tribe because he used his magic for evil. The shaman had been tracked and killed while in his wolf state, and by a few warriors and a couple of settlers in the area. His dying breath, he cursed them and vowed to return from the dead to haunt the forests and seek revenge on their families and all who lived there. Another man on the bench with a leathery, Weathered face said he heard from his grandma that the beast was once a settler that came over from Europe back in the early 1800s with a disease that made him turn into a madman at night. The disease was eventually passed along to his children, which never went to school, but stayed hidden away from the population. Many thought the family had died off because for years they had never seen or heard from them, and after investigations by some brave men, they discovered the homestead vacant and abandoned in the early 1900s. The sightings of the monster were still frequent throughout the beginning of the 20th century, and the elderly group on the bench each told some unsettling encounters that they or members of their family had had. Each one told stories of finding livestock slaughtered, ripped to pieces, and ate upon, cows and pigs with their legs dismembered and ripped from the sockets. Even a few horses had met their end with savage attacks upon their bodies. A few of them described what they saw at different times when they caught glimpses of the figures by peeking out of the curtains of the window into the night. One man said it jumped out of one of the horse stalls one evening while he was putting up some animals. It stopped in front of him, arms spread out like it was getting ready to grab him, let out a howl, and then sprang past him into the dusky shadows of the sunset. This particular man said he wet his overalls during the episode. Oh no. Mm. <laughs> no wonder it ran away. Another man said he had never seen it, but would always hear its baleful wails frequently at night, not like a regular wolf or a coyote. No, he said, it was more deeper, longer, stronger sounding than what would come out of any animal he ever heard. Another old-timer said his wife had seen it trying to get into the chicken coop, but gave up after getting tangled in the chicken wire. Aww. They all had tales of someone's hound dog getting killed, ripped apart limb by limb, someone's pig or cow, or chicken getting eaten. The mysterious footprints were left in the mud and the stench it left behind where it ever, wherever it appeared. And more than one had the same story of listening to it walk across their front porches at night and scratching on the doors and walls, which would leave deep gouges in the wood as they, that they would find in the morning. All of them agreed that this was not a Bigfoot or Sasquatch. It would only be another year or two after hearing this that a mysterious beast that I myself would encounter it at the home of a family member that lived in the same area. Hmm. So, so there's our build-up, kind of a little history of land between the lakes. Backgrounds, an odd area. Yeah, little 
backstory on there's this thing that's killing things. Strange <laughs> encounters in an area rich in history with Native Americans. That's right. Settlers. But now we get into the meat of the story. Hmm. <laughs> Pun not intended. <laughs> so this was just a brief introduction to the unwritten accounts of the darker side of Land Between the Lakes. A prelude, actually, to the real story I will begin to unfold. I just wanted to lay some groundwork so you could get the big picture and form some of your own opinions and theories. Walk with me now as I take you back about 22 years, back to the early 1980s, where I used to work midnights at a gas station a few miles from the Kentucky Dam, which was a few miles from the beginning of Land Between the Lakes in Grand Rivers. And it was on one of these midnight shifts I had two visitors that would change my outlook on the subject of werewolves. This story was never in the paper or the news or had any media attention at all. It was kept hush-hush, and a sacred silence was demanded on all those involved. It couldn't get out, ever. It was a few weeks before the beginning of tourist season, and tourists were what the locals survived on. They were the bread and butter. A story like this would be like screaming sharks at Daytona Beach or child molester at Disneyland. Whoa. If you so inclined to do that. Wow. The people would stop coming out of fear. I wasn't a witness to the fact, just a third person, making observations and having conversations with two individuals who were a part of the incident, who were involved in the whole ordeal. They had just came from the crime scene down in the middle of Land Between the Lakes after being there for over eight hours. It was around three in the morning, and they were taking a much-needed reality break. Two officers of the law, two grown men who both appeared shaken beyond description, a mixture of fear and confusion, shock and disbelief emanated from them both. One was paler than the other, a deathly pallor over his skin, and it was this one, only in him Officer Adam, to protect their identities, that had to sit on the curb of the gas pumps, head between his legs, and expel the last bit of his stomach contents. Ew. The other officer, I'll name him Officer Bill, came in for some coffee for himself and a cup of water for his partner, then rejoined Adam outside. There were no other customers, so I went outside with them to see if I could offer some assistance with the ill man. He gladly took the few Rolades I had extended in my hand with his own shaky fingers, and he struggled to get them into his mouth. I don't remember sitting down after about 15 minutes of hushed stillness. I found myself beside them both on the curb, staring out into the darkness of nearby corn pastures, letting my mind paint pictures of imaginary traumas Adam spoke first. Breaking the silence of obscurity, I can't believe it, it's not possible, I just can't believe it, in a hushed agreement that was almost inaudible. Bill replied, I know it was, is, it is so unbelievable. I've never seen anything like this before. Long pause, a deep breath, and he continued, or even heard of anything like this before. I looked at Bill and then at Adam, and they were both gazing open-eyed and blinking out into the inky color of the night. Adam's bottom lip was trembling slightly, and it wasn't from the slight chill in the late spring air. Something, or something, had filled them each with a congested fear. After a few more moments of silent reserve, my patience was rewarded with some slow, fragmented descriptions of their past eight hours. Bill turned his wide azure blue eyes towards me. They were glazed and bloodshot, tired, frightened eyes. With a weary, shaken voice, he began to unfold a tale that would forever be embedded within my spirit, like a nasty shadow that lingers around a corner waiting to pounce, to awaken your inner fears once again. Why he decided to tell me, of all people, was beyond my comprehension. 
Maybe it was an avenue he felt safe to travel upon to get off his chest, off his mind. They were both frequent customers, and we knew each other on first-name basis. But to divulge such a torrid account of great magnitude, well, I can only say that the fear inside them both at that moment in time had to be released, eased, and extracted from their souls, or else they may have gone mad with unbalanced thoughts. Without interrupting, I sat entranced, listening to every word, absorbing them like an opiate, a spellbinding narcotic that hypnotized me into forgetting the world even existed for the next half an hour or so. They had gotten a call to help with an investigation at one of the many rural campgrounds down in Land Between the Lakes. The tourist season was about to start in a few weeks, so as usual, there were some early arrivals that had come to claim prime camping spots before the areas were overrun with tents, campers, and travel trailers. The sun was setting low in the sky when they arrived at the scene. Several other official vehicles were already there, and there were many more to come as they would soon find out. Many coming from other counties, and a few coming all the way from another state. Several of these to come were coroners from different counties. One coroner vehicle was already present as well as an ambulance, which would prove useless as there, were no, there was no one to save. The victims were all dead, quite dead completely, totally, and thoroughly deceased. A young married couple that had come down to take it easy for a few days were the first to discover the ghastly scene. Neither one of them wanted to stay behind while the other went for help, so they both nervously traveled to the nearest town, Grand Rivers, and called the authorities. They did not return to land between the lakes. They merely gave the arriving officer directions to the area of discovery and rented a local hotel room. With the sun going down, it got dark pretty fast. There was a flurry of floodlights from the cruisers being pointed in all directions, along with the excited movements of $50 flashlights being held by nervous, restless hands, searching the trees, the ground, the leaves, the shadows. There was a parked motor home at the site, its frame being lit by a campfire close by, a fire that had almost went out on its own, that had been rekindled by the new crowd of men in uniform so that they could have more light. The front and back doors to the home were open, one of the doors hanging by a hinge in a crooked slant. Through the windows, they could see zigzag movements of luminosity. As the beams from flashlights searched the interior, bloody handprints slid down the thin metal walls close to the front door, and more bloody hand paintings could be seen along the length towards the back door, their images dancing eerily in the firelight like some ancient tribal symbols. Adam and Bill did not even want to imagine what was inside the motorhome, but then again, they would soon find out that it wasn't what was inside, but what was outside that would change their lives forever. There was already crime scene tape placed in numerous scattered parts of the area, and little white flags on metal stakes stuck into the ground marking evidence. Evidence of ripped clothing, bodies, and body parts. Separated limbs, a pile of bowels, pieces of loose flesh clinging to muscle tissue, what used to be three bodies that just hours before had been a happy family on a vacation to create happy memories for years to come, a father, a mother, and a young son. The happiness was gone, destroyed by a psychotic madman, or was it men? A murderous rage had taken place, one so abhorrently app appalling that there were few witnesses to the scene that had kept their composure and held their recently eaten dinners down. At first sight, the victims appeared to be butchered by some unnameable weapon, possibly an axe or a chainsaw. Upon further inspection by the first arriving coroner, the wounds on the bodies were determined not to have been caused by sharp instrument, 
but rather by some piercing, well-defined claws, or other wounds by some keen, mordantly long incisors. Wildcat? Bear? Wolves? The coroner shook his head in a baffled disagreement with each guess from the officers. The claw marks, for instance, on the back of the father's corpse were distinctively made by four long claws, with a smaller digit, like a thumb, on the side. Its span was wider than a man's print, wider and different than a bear's mark, with deep, deliberate gouges in the flesh. Rake marks from an angry, unknown source trying to grab its prey that was no doubt trying to escape. The wildcat and wolves theory was dismissed as the open wound marks were apparently made by a more grandiose animal source. The bite marks were much larger than any mountain lion, wolf, or coyote. Whatever did it had a longer snout and more sizable teeth. There were also indications in the larger areas of the cadavers of bite marks where the flesh, meat, and bone had been yanked away from the body, like a human who bites into an apple and leaves the impressions of his bite and teeth marks. So were the open wounds on these individuals. Bears, well, they aren't native to the area, but who knows, maybe a grizzly did sneak in some way, but that was far-fetched. He would have had to travel several states and cross several rivers to even get close to that part of Kentucky. Everyone present was betting on the bear hypothesis anyway, and no one even thought of anything else to be the cause of such a savage attack. A bear. It had to be a bear. From the back door of the motorhome, an officer stepped down slowly, holding in his hand some type of garment, a dress, a small dress, that would have fit a small girl of around five years old, he informed the onlookers that there were more little girls' clothing packed inside the couch. This meant there was a missing person, or an absent body, a member of the family. They all prayed she was still alive somehow, hiding somewhere. A new search began. As time went by, additional law enforcement employees arrived as well as a few volunteer rescue squad members. Groups were spread out and assigned in areas to examine and explore. Another coroner arrived to assist in the identification and causes of death, and much later a third one showed up, this one from a nearby state. All types of samples were placed in plastic bags, marked as evidence, and carefully stowed away. As they were packing up what appeared to be one of the father's arms, one of the doctors noticed something wrapped between the dead fingers. Some tweezers slowly untangled a clump of long gray and brown hairs. This too was placed in a bag, marked, and put away to be analyzed at a lab later. From somewhere in the nearby woods, about 50 yards from the campfire, a scream was heard. A man shrieked that turned into a long wail and then to whimpering. As others arrived, they could see by the gleam of several flashlights that the cop was holding his hat in one hand and his light in the other. There was blood on his face, the front of his shirt, and the brim of his hat. More blood could be seen dripping on him. It was coming from above. High in the trees, the flashlight swung searching for the source of the mysterious bleeding. A very small hand could be seen dangling down from a tree limb way up high, as well as a slender, lifeless leg that still had a white sock still on the foot. The missing child had been located. It had been Adam that the blood had trickled upon, hitting his hat first, making him look up, and then feeling the thick, cold fluid sprinkling on his face and sliding down to his neatly buttoned shirt. It had been Adam that had screamed, the little girl had apparently been carried up the tree and leisurely eaten upon while being carefully laid across a large tree branch. More of the same long gray and brown hair was found sticking in the bark of the tree near her body. 
After about seven hours, most of the officers were sent away as a new team of investigators arrived. They were told not to talk to anyone of the incident, especially not the media. I'm sure that besides Adam and Bill, there were others who had to confess what they saw that night, if in fact this whole event ever really happened. Witnesses that had to divulge the awful secret of that atrocious discovery at one of the campgrounds of Land Between the Lakes. About a month after sitting outside with Adam and Bill that night, they stopped in again during one of my midnight shifts. They were both rather quiet, more serious in nature, not like before the incident where they would kid around while drinking their sodas or eating a snack or two. They had both aged in some odd way. Streaks of gray that had not been there before highlighted both of their heads of hair. Their faces had lines of worry and showed signs of stress. I would see them again many times afterwards, but on this particular evening, they informed me that they got word about some of the lab tests that were taking that, taken that dreadful night. The tests on the saliva taken from the bite marks and from the hair found on the man's fingers and in the tree bark came back with an unknown species origin. The closest animal that they could be compared to was that of a canis lupus, a wolf. Whether Adam and Bill had played an elaborate hoax on me, I'll never really know for sure, but their sincerity and fear painted a picture of truth in their eyes and actions. There are several more stories that I have heard about this werewolf over in Land Between the Lakes that have been told to me over the years after this particular incident. There were several groups of Boy Scouts that had seen it. Several more campers, fishermen, and boaters that had seen it from the safety of their boats, floating in some of the many bays that touched upon the shoreline. Hikers and bikers have heard its howling and have seen something stalking them while they were on rural trails, hiding amongst the trees and foliage. Hunters have run across deer carcasses that have been brutally torn apart. There was even a pair of curious gravestone rubbers, those that go out in search of century or more old tombstones, then make rubbings by placing paper against the coarse stones and using a piece of charcoal to rub across it, thus capturing the images and dates from the stones onto the paper. They had had a fearful encounter with it at one of the old cemeteries. It actually had come up to the car as they were leaving and shook the back end of the vehicle up and down and left terrible scratch marks in the trunk lid as it tried to hold onto the little Toyota while the tires were spinning in the wet grass to get away. These two individuals didn't stop driving until they were about 40 miles away. Only then did they dare stop to investigate the damage done. I myself have seen those scratches, much too wide for any man to have made them. They looked like heavy metal garden rakes. But you will never read about it in the papers, or hear about it on the news, or get a confession from any law enforcement official or man of office. The media will say it's a bunch of hoo-ha. They're just pranks, silly stories, urban legends, lies, tall tales and such. This is tourism country, and that means millions of dollars to the area, so you can't steer off business, can you? And that bench, the long, sturdy, heavy oak bench that sat in front of the old country store for decades, it is still in existence. In fact, I had a grand opportunity of acquiring it several years ago, when an even newer version of an IGA store was being built upon the same grounds. The bench now sits in my front yard by the driveway, where I sit to wave goodbye to all those who had come to visit for the day. I've learned to always wave goodbye, because you never know if you'll see them again. You never know what lies in store for you or them. What lies in the shadows, waiting, watching, with hungry eyes, and a drooling snout. Welcome to Paranormal Guys After Dark. Paranormal Guys Dark Chocolate. <laughs> well, that's... Well, there you go. Hey, let's go camping and land between the lakes. Hey, no, let's not. <laughs> so, hey. <clears throat> yes. Dogman. 
Mm-hmm. Terrifying. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Crazy, crazy dog, man. It is. To think that uh, something like that could even exist. Yeah, and, and the thing is, that's that's kind of maybe the most famous story about a dogman encounter in Kentucky, but there's all kinds of dogman encounters in Kentucky. Yeah, there's several. Um, I mean, Barilla. The Barilla, as you get out going towards Lexington, and you know they talk about stories about Panther Rock, and if it's not Sasquatch, dogman encounters, just, um, yeah, it's pretty scary. Yeah, I know I wouldn't want to go up against one. No, I can't imagine being tar- targeted by something like that. No. Large predator, it has all the uh, apex predator capabilities, and we're soft and, you know, squishy. That's right. <laughs> Wouldn't put up much of a fight. No. Stop it! <laughs> Bad dog. <laughs> no. 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what if it would work? No. Or if you throw a stick? Here you go, boy. Here you go. Uh-huh. I think you'd bring your arm back with the stick. What if that would work, though? What if you were attacked by a dog man and you just you broke into, here's everything I know about dogs and did that, and it worked? I keep telling you, one day, somebody's going to adopt a rescue, and it's going to end up being a dog man puppy. It's not really a dog, I thought it was a great day. And one day, it's just going to be in the kitchen, flipping eggs on the skillet, and it'll be the only civilized dog man mm-hmm. there is. Yeah. Can a dog man talk? I don't think so. Hmm. I mean, if he could, he probably blocks out everything like Buffalo Bill. Never want to see my mom. Put it in the basket. Put it in the basket. <laughs> oh. yeah. We need to go to Land Between the Lakes. Do a live I'm, show. Go visit during the day in, in a, a moving vehicle. Night. No. We, right after we come back from our live show from the uh, Suicide Forest. We're meaty and we can't move very fast. <laughs> so we're not going to leave. I think I can move slightly faster than you, though. So. Mm. I might get a couple minutes. <laughs> yeah, all I got to do is knock you down. Unless he's smart enough to be like, wait, I'll just kill him and then kill him and then it's over. So yeah, probably. Yeah. And then it's then it's eats for two weeks. That's right. Mm-hmm. You yeah. hope it's not in the middle of like July. No, yeah. be a little gamey at the end of the two weeks. <laughs> Garlic butter. So yeah. Anyway, I mean, dogmen. That's. Pretty scary the, stuff. The more and more I read up and learn about dogmen, the more and more I think I have something else to you know, worry about in the woods at night. Well, out here where you live. Eh. I mean, big park right across the street. Eh. Come on, don't think they can't climb over that stupid chain link fence you have. <laughs> not that it's not open down there by the driveway. Oh, no, they confuse them. <sighs> no. See just come up, pecking on the window. Your kids, they'd let him in. Yeah. All right, there's a puppy. Puppy, probably big puppy. <laughs> well, now that everybody's been brought down by the horror right. of the dog man, mm-hmm. murdered children, kind of a kind of a different paranormal guys. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I don't like the way this one went, Chad. <laughs> Could we may save somebody's life one day. That's right. Don't go camping. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying where. I'm not saying when. I'm just saying don't go camping. Yeah. If you uh. Have any interest in dogmen at all? Check out stories from Land Between the Lakes. That's right. A lot of weird stuff. Don't go camping, Chad. No. But you know where you should go? Where's that, Chris? Paranormalguys.com. Wow. That's our website. Uh huh. <laughs> and if you go there, you can listen to the shows. 
Uh, you can get on. You can get any of uh, the news that may be happening with us that we'll post on there. Mm-hmm. There are some pics that we put up from time to time related to the show, places Mag- we go, things we've done. Magical pictures of Steve. Steve, where is? Steve? Steve? I don't know what you did with Steve. Maybe he went home. He probably left. He went. He went on his own. Steve phone home. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a link to send us an email, and also a link to sign up for an email alert for new shows. And there's also a link to donate to the show if you feel so inclined. Absolutely. And, you know, if you have any comments, suggestions, stories, stories for yeah. Chad, you can get a hold of us on the page, like I just said, or you can shoot us an email directly from the guys at paranormalguys.com. Mm-hmm. Another way to do that would be go to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash paranormalguys. You sure? Pretty sure. Okay. <laughs> You know, it's on Facebook. Mm-hmm. <laughs> also on Facebook, you can find out when new shows pop up. And Chad does a pretty good job of putting some interesting little links and things like that and stories and all kinds of related accoutrement tidbits on our Facebook page. Mm-hmm. So give that a look. Hey, and while you're checking out our Facebook page, uh-huh. head on over to William Blanchard's Facebook page. Musical genius. He is the uh, gentleman that supplies all the music for the show. And you can find him at facebook.com slash William Blanchard. (laughs) Soundtrack is Chad can't listen to his music anymore because he's about to go deaf by shoving sharp metal object in his ear canal. My ear itches. Wow. So, yeah, give old uh, Mr. Blanchard some likes and shares from his page. Absolutely. And don't shove anything uh, sharper than your elbow in your ear. This is true. Don't follow what I'm doing. No. Do as Chad says, not as he does. Even then, it's probably a bad idea. Probably. But that brings us to the close of another exciting Paranormal Guys, Chad. It does. So sad. Well, who knows? Maybe we'll be visiting with you once a week in the future. That's right. We're, th- we're, we're, giving, it, we're giving it serious thought. Have a Paranormal Weeks. Rock Lobster. Ah.